All right, good morning. Grab your Bible. We are going to use it thoroughly this morning. I hope you're prepared. Now, you may be hopeful. If you have followed this series so far and you looked at today's outline in the bulletin, you might go, oh, that's short. Um, The others have been quite extensive. Um, This one requires us to do a little bit more scripture reading, though, so we're going to dive into the text and see some interesting things as we dive in. But as we set up for this, go ahead and find the book of Deuteronomy. I know it might not be your favorite place to start in Scripture. Most people, when they start a Scripture reading plan, give up around Leviticus and don't know that there's a book of Deuteronomy, but it is there, and it's a very good book. We're going to start there, and we're going to work through much of the Scriptures, um, a lot in the Old Testament, a lot of passages in the New Testament this morning as we walk through this. So let's just remind ourselves, first, what we are doing. We are studying what are called, historically, the means of grace. Now, interestingly enough, We don't use either of those two words in modern English the same way that they're used in that expression. So sometimes it's easier to call them something else. So depending on your background, you may hear the word sacrament, or you may hear the word ordinance, depending on which background of church uh, theology you grew up in. We're really still talking about the same thing, means of grace. So when we say grace, obviously we, we most often think of, when we sing the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, what, wretch like me. We think of that saving grace of the gospel, but the reality is, is grace isn't just a saving work. It does save you. It is completely by grace you are saved, but the scriptures also speak of grace as that thing that carries you through as you get more Christ-like, as you grow in your faith. And it's important that we note here that growing in your faith is not the same as getting more righteous, or doing a better job at doing good works. If you grow in good works, if you grow in good deeds, you, you might have this tendency to turn into the wrong thing at the end of that process. You can probably guess where this goes. What people in this New Testament especially grew in good works, but it didn't work out for them. Who am I talking about? The Pharisees, the hypocrites. That's not what we mean when we talk about a, mean of, a means of grace, ways I can grow in Christ. What's happening in the New Testament is we are commanded, we are called to be Christ-like. We want Christ to be formed in us so that my character, my inner person, my innermost being, maybe the new self, the new creation within me is Christ-like. And it's very character and it's very nature. And so my outward deeds are merely the fruit of this inward spiritual reality. And so when we talk about sanctification... Actually, it's that process we're talking about, not the outward self becoming more Christ-like, but really the inward self becoming more Christ-like. So we have to ask a very simple question at this point, how do we become more Christ-like? It's one thing to make New Year's resolutions. It's another thing to set goals in your life for how you want to change, how you want to be a different person. But we're talking here about an internal change of the heart. It's hard to change your heart. I know, for instance, if I just told myself I'm not going to like king cake anymore. I can say that all day long. But the fact of the matter is, is every time you put a king cake in front of me, I don't care if you don't like king cake, I do. All right, and when I see one, I'm like, it's, I went to the greenhouse on Porter in Ocean Springs. Y'all know that little place? First time I've ever been in there, they had a king cake biscuit. You know, inward heart's desire matched up with that biscuit. And when I got done, I wanted the tray of those biscuits. I'm like, I could go there every morning. 
you know, and probably eat this biscuit. So when we say a change of desire, that's like telling someone, you need to quit wanting the biscuit. Just, just stop. I think we all know that that's almost impossible to do, right? Just to have this inward change where I don't like something anymore, but it's really the same thing. We want to, I'm telling you, week after week, just stop liking sin, and you won't do it anymore. <laughs> what? But that is what we're saying. That's exactly what we're saying. So it's very important that we know how you stop liking sin, and reverse of that, you start liking to obey God more. That's the Christ-like character. He wanted to obey his Father. We should want and desire to honor the Lord in everything. We desire to bring him glory. How do we grow in that desire? The Bible gives us some official means of grace, means of change, means of transformation, strategies for growth. Whatever expression works for you, there are biblically ordained ways that we can be transformed, things God has given me that I can do. Now, these fall into two categories, and we've only looked at the first category so far. One is objective, meaning outside of you, and the other is subjective, inside of you. Next week, we'll start the subjective. Those are usually called disciplines, spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and reading the Bible, memorizing, meditation. We're going to cover those starting next week. So far, we've only discussed the objective, which are, there's three, biblically, three means of grace, three formal, God-ordained, collective, and objective means of grace. And can you give me the three? Lord's Supper, baptism, preaching the Word. Those are the three biblically ordained, objective, collective, means of grace. All of them bring transformation. So we spent some time talking about the Lord's Supper and how there's an act of communion in that. We're not looking for Christ's presence metaphysically in the supper, which was often the historical question. We're looking for the presence of Christ in me, the forming of God's character in me through this means of grace. When someone is baptized, both the person being baptized experiences this act of grace. They're not being saved. By the water, it's a symbol, but it's a symbol that has God-ordained meaning, God-ordained power in the symbol. And when we see someone get baptized as a church, if you, if you love Jesus and you see someone get baptized, that, that stirs your heart. Uh, every time we baptize in this room, everybody gets excited. And it's because we're seeing the power of grace work, and that's a sanctifying work in us. So now we're going to talk about, and usually if you put out a systematic theology book, you read a book from, from older times, and you, we talk about the means of grace, the one we're doing today always comes first, because it's considered primary. I did it last just for practical reasons, because I wanted to hit Lord's Supper and baptism, because we were starting to do the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and we had a baptism coming up. So I wanted to get those first, so we could put some meaning behind them immediately. But the truth is, biblically speaking, preaching of the Word is considered the most powerful, and the most readily used, the most discussed in the scriptures means of transformation. So we're going to talk about how preaching the word, and we're talking about in this context, the idea of gathering together as the body and hearing the word taught, hearing the word read, hearing the word explained, or as we'll read a passage later, giving the sense. Um, we'll see how that produces in us actual transformation. So this is the last of the objective Disciplines. We're going to take the same basic pattern we've done for all of them. We're going to start in the Old Testament, kind of come into the New Testament, and see how we use these means of grace actively in our lives today. Anybody excited about that? 
Oh, that was more than I thought. I was like, okay, very good. We'll go with this. I told you to turn to Deuteronomy. I forgot to, so we'll get there. Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy represents the last book of the first section of your Bible. Let's see who the nerds in the room are. What is that first section of the Bible called? I heard Torah. I heard Pentateuch. And probably someone said law. Those are all exactly the same thing. All answers are correct. Pentateuch just means five books. So it's the first five books. Pretty straightforward. Law is what it is. Torah is just the Hebrew word for law. So all of those things were referenced to the same thing. So most of Old Testament history, the law is a direct reference to those five books. And for the most part, who wrote those five books down? Moses did. So sometimes they're called the the law of Moses. Sometimes it's just called Moses in the New Testament. You say, well, Moses said, that's a reference to these five books, the law. And sometimes it's, it's put in three sections. You have the law, the writings, and the prophets. The law is this first section. And for much of Israel's history, the law was their whole Bible. So for us, when we say the whole Bible, we mean the Old and New Testament. When Jesus was preaching, if we said the whole Bible, we would mean what? The whole Old Testament. Well, during the time of Joshua, Judges, and the early kings, when you said the whole Bible, the whole Word of God, you still meant just this first section, the first five books. But I want you to see how they used these books. So I want to start in Deuteronomy um, 29. We're going to read the last verse, read the last verse in that section, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. So this is near the very end of Moses' ministry. He's, of course, he spent 40 years in Egypt, then 40 years in the wilderness, and then he led the people out of Egypt, and they spent 40 more years in the wilderness. So now he's near the end. They're getting close to the period where they're going to go into the promised land. Joshua's going to lead them. And you can see Moses kind of getting an attitude every now and then in this book because he's frustrated with the people because now he's not going to get into go, go into the promised land because technically he made the mistake, but he blames it on them. And so he's kind of bitter at times that he's going to get to go up on the mountain and see the land, but not get to go in. And he kind of makes these prophecies that um, you're going to get in that land and, and you're not going to obey and God's going to destroy you for it. You can see this attitude kind of coming up, but he's just frustrated that they have God's revelation. They're not listening to it. Can you imagine going up on the mountain and having a conversation with God Almighty in some physical manifestation, coming down and talking about it and the people being like, oh, that's cool. You can imagine for Moses what this feels like. So I just love this last verse of 29. Then we're going to read a few verses in chapter 30. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What are the things that are revealed as far as Moses is concerned? This Torah. God, he's got secret things we'll never understand. There's things that are beyond us. Even when you get to heaven, you will not know it all. We cannot. You would have to be God to do that. There are secret things that belong to the Lord, but there are things that he has given us. They're ours. Moses is saying, we're a special people here in the Old Testament. We have God's law. Now skip over to chapter 30, verse 11. He says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. So he says, I'm giving you something that you can do. You can walk in God's word. You can accomplish this. He's given you something. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and death, or life and good, death and evil. 
if you obey, you're going to get to walk in this love. So go further down, verse 19. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Now, choosing life is specifically choosing what in their lives? Well, more literally, it's choosing God's law. Choosing life means doing this book. Choosing life means obeying this word. From this point forward, there is no question in Israelite history, the centrality of the word is life to them. So the written word, and just to make sure we're all clear that it's written, jump over to chapter 31, and let's look at verse 9. It says, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time, in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, that will end up being Jerusalem, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So who's supposed to gather together to hear God's word read out loud? Everybody. If you're not sure it's everybody, verse 12. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, meaning they didn't go through the wilderness and see all of this, they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to possess. So how often do they have to come together and literally hear the word proclaimed? Every seven years. Now, you would have to ask yourself at this point, why don't they just do it at home? There's a very simple, pragmatic answer to that question. Where is the law in their world? It's at the temple. It's wherever the Ark of the Covenant is. Do they have a copy at their house? No, they do not. They don't have a cell phone. In fact, what we call a book, a bound copy like this, does not exist yet. So I love in movies, you'll see this old you know, magic book or something that's like thousands of years old and it's bound like this. No, that that did not exist. This is less than 2,000 years old. This technology, it's new. It's like having a car in the Middle Ages. Like, sorry, no, it's, it's, it's an anachronism. That's not how this works. They didn't have that. They had nothing. So they literally had to come together every seven years, get everybody together and read the Bible together. This is what they did. It became a very fundamental, important thing for God's people. Now, if you actually pay attention and you just keep going from the, New, from the Old Testament from this point forward, you'll find that there's a lot of ups and downs in Israel's history. In fact, tend to be more downs. And these ups are like, up, back down, hang out here. And a quick up and back down. And almost every time that quick up involves, in fact, one time they're remodeling the temple and they're like, hey, we found a book in there. Found a book in the temple. What book were they talking about? They were talking about the law. But how did it go missing? You're supposed to be reading it every seven years. You can imagine there's a lot of neglect to God's word when it's so poorly available. I literally have to come to Jerusalem to get this. But I want to skip over most of Israel's history. And if you're familiar, there was this event in their history called the, well, we did the Exodus, and there's an event called the Exile. So the Exile is when God, because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, God takes them out of their land, to Babylon, and then eventually lets them come back home and they have to rebuild the the wall around Jerusalem and they have to rebuild the temple. There's two, the most famous two guys from that period are Ezra 
and Nehemiah. Now, in Nehemiah, Ezra preaches a sermon. So we're going to go look. So it's always confusing to me to remember who did it. But it's in the book of Nehemiah. The guy named Ezra gathers the people together, and they do what Moses said they were supposed to do way back at the beginning. So this would be like every seven years, except for them it's like every four or five hundred years. They do this, but from this point forward, it becomes a very significant thing for them. So let's quickly, let's walk through some of this. Nehemiah chapter 8, that's probably a less read book in your Bible. You can find it, it's in your, if nothing else, it's in your table of contents. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law before the assembly. Now what book are we talking about? It's the Torah. Bring the book. And technically, it's not a book. Bring the scroll of the law. So they brought it before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And they read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from the early morning until midday. So, don't ever complain about my sermons being long. We could pull up Ezra one Sunday and just see... Of course, the church might shut down. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah, we got some, got some hungry folks in the room. Hungry for this. Maybe also other food, but I know what you're saying. All right, let's jump further down, though. Verse 8. I want you to see this. It says, so these guys come together. They read the Bible. Then they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, if you get down in the, the specifics of the text, you'll see that it's not just Ezra saying at the podium, reading from Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34. That's not how it worked. Instead, they break kind of into small groups, and you have Levites reading the law and explaining the law, much more like we might call a Bible study or even a sermon, giving the sense, making sure people knew what was happening. Now, let's read verse 8. When this all went down, so Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Well, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, imagine for that you have access to God's word in an unprecedented way. These guys had never seen it, never heard it. They're hearing it for the first time. And you would think it would cause in them joy and excitement, but instead it causes them to mourn and weep. Why do you think that is? Because they're reading the book of the law, which they have not been doing. They've been disobeying this word, conviction, happens in the heart, they weep, and the, the priests, the Levites have to calm the people down, like, no, 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 guys, this, this is good, God's revelation has come out, what we need to do now is not be sad that we've been doing it wrong, but instead, let's do it right, let's repent, let's follow what the Lord has commanded. Now, in church's history, or in Israel's history, from this point forward, the law and the reading of the law and the preaching of the word becomes more prominent in what will eventually be um, in the church they have, you, you don't see this in the Old Testament much, but this word synagogue, they would gather together in a little local gathering and they would read from the scriptures. It became a fundamental aspect of their system. So let's make sure we filled in some blanks here in your outline. So preaching the Old Testament from Sinai forward, that's from Moses receiving the law, the written revelation of God was the source of life, fundamental. The written revelation of God was the source of life. Then after the Babylonian exile, so this is what we get from Nehemiah, from Ezra, the teaching of Scripture became the center element of the synagogue. We've got to make sure everybody knows what's going on. So we see the, the technologically, from Moses to 
Babylonian era is now we're getting a lot more copies of the word spread out. Every local synagogue may have the law. Maybe not the whole law, but at least parts of it. And we can gather together in our own town. You can imagine that's a big upgrade. From having to go to Jerusalem to hear the law to you can go to your local synagogue and hear the law. This progressively gets better and better and better until one day we wake up and realize we all own a paper copy, maybe several that get dusty, and we all have every known translation available to us on a smartphone for free. Like major world transformation. But this is what's happening in the Old Testament. So let's come to the New Testament, however, and see how the Bible is thought about in the New Testament. So Jesus, during his ministry, preaches from and affirms and lifts up and heightens the use of the Old Testament throughout. He's not denying the Old Testament. Somebody might go to the Sermon on the Mount and say, you've heard it said, and then Jesus says, but I say to you, and none of those is he changing the Old Testament. He's not looking at the Old Testament and saying, oh, that was wrong. Let me get this right. He's looking at the Old Testament and saying, you've misread this. Let's get you right in line with what was actually said. It's an elevated view of the Scripture. So Jesus taught the Word and emphasized its power. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this in Matthew's Gospel is when he's questioned on the the Sadducees about the resurrection, and they come to him with that really silly question about, well, you got this woman, and she marries this dude. They don't have any children, and he dies, so she marries the brother who dies, marries the brother who dies, goes through seven different brothers. They all die, no kids, and she dies, and they say, well, in that resurrection you believe in, who is she going to be married to in the end? And I love his answer. He says, you're missing two things. One, you don't believe in the power of God, and you don't know anything about the Scriptures. Where's he getting this information from? And he goes to quote directly from the Old Testament Scriptures saying, the Old Testament proves the doctrine of the resurrection. He's holding it in very high authority, and this is Jesus. And then another great one, in Luke's Gospel, there's this parable. That's, um, a lot of debate happens in this parable, and sometimes the point is missing. You have this man who dies, and he goes down in the Abraham's bosom parable, and then he can see across the great chasm, one is suffering, one is in Abraham's bosom, and they go back and forth, and the one who's suffering is like, I've got brothers, can somebody go back from here, from Hades, and go just warn them about how bad this place is? Because if someone went back and warned them, they would believe. Now think through the logic of that. If someone returned from hell and said, guys, you have no idea how bad it is. You've got to believe in Jesus. Part of us says, well, that seems like that would work. Well, in the parable, the answer is no, that won't work. That will not convert a soul. They've got Moses. And if they don't believe Moses, there's no hope for them. Because in Moses, in the law, in the book, there's the power of God. In your testimony, there's a reference to the power of God. And there is a huge chasm between those two things. This is the power of God on display. So even in Jesus' ministry, the word specifically is emphasized. Next, we have the apostles. So go to Acts. If you're familiar with the narrative of Acts, they stay in Jerusalem for a few days after Jesus goes back to heaven, and they have to wait for a very important individual to come before they're allowed to go out and witness. And who is this individual that must come? The Holy Spirit has to come and indwell them. So we call that the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up on that day after the Spirit fills them. They speak in tongues. They hear the gospel proclaimed in many languages. And they call out and ask questions. Peter gets up and starts preaching. And of course, he's going to quote from the Bible three different times in that one sermon. Where's he getting his authority from? Even as an apostle, what's 
what's the what's he doing? What's Peter doing? He's still preaching the word. He's still preaching, in that case, the Old Testament, but even what he's going to say is going to become part of the New Testament, and that whole narrative ends. ends all these people get saved, and in 242 it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So he's quoting the Old Testament and then essentially writing the New. And they are devoting themselves to the Word of God in the early church. So not only did Jesus teach the Word and emphasize His power, the apostles taught the Word authoritatively. In fact, my favorite example of this is in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, they create a new office within the church. You may remember this scenario. There's some bickering going on in the daily distribution. There's no needy people in the early church because they're giving out their possessions, giving out their money, buying food, taking care of their poor. But in their poor, they've got two groups. They've got Greek-speaking widows. They've got Hebrew-speaking widows. And the Hebrew-speaking widows are taking priority. They come to the apostles complaining about it. And the apostles say, whoa, 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 we don't want to fix this problem. We have something better to do. And what's the better thing they have to do? This is in verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now, it's not, that doesn't mean they neglect the problem. Instead, they pass off the problem on a group of people that will later be called probably deacons. And they start doing this ministry. So the apostles continue their work of the Word. And then in verse 7, Acts 6, 7. And then because of this work, the Word of God continued to increase. That's interesting. Phrase it that way. The special place of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God reached a higher level because of what the apostles did in this scenario. Very high view of the Word. So the apostles taught the Word of God authoritatively. Next, early Christians, so we're going beyond the New Testament in this statement, early Christians emphasized the written Word. Now this is both just looking at their lives, we can see this, what they wrote, we can see this, but the biggest evidence for this is what they did with their Bibles. They copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. We have thousands of copies of the Bible from those early centuries because they were writing and writing and writing. They believed they had to get this out as fast as possible. Their work continued. It, it kind of took a dull, a dull period through the uh, um, medieval period, then the Reformation. We rebooted now with the modern printing press. And you can imagine, what are they printing a lot of on that Gutenberg printing press? Bibles. So much that we reach today. Most saturated the globe has ever been in copies of God's Word. It's just been this progressive work of history. So there's a centrality of the Word throughout all of Scripture and really throughout of tr- Throughout all of church history, the only time the church has done poorly is when the Word was not central. Hands down. You can look at church history, take the Word out of its primacy, out of its centralized location, the church falls to pieces. You put the Word back, the church restores its health. Guaranteed every time because the power is in the Word. Now let's talk about the sacramental power of preaching the Bible. So we've kind of been going through start to finish, so let's go one more book in your Bible, Romans. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 has a lot of very good stuff in it that we don't have time to dive into at the moment, but I want to dive into verse 14. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Now, one teaching of the church, um, really in any version of Christianity that's thought this question through, is going to answer this question the same way. You cannot be saved, period, apart from the Scriptures. God has to speak to you, or you cannot 
be saved. In other words, there's no such thing as blind faith. You can't walk out to a tree and say, you know what, I have faith. This tree just makes me think I should be a man of faith. Because faith is stupid if it's not in something. You faith in the tree, then that's paganism. doesn't count. You faith in the idea of something, it's got to be specific. In the New Testament, you have to faith in who? Jesus, specifically. So, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call? On him in whom they have not believed. And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, if there's no greater reason to believe in the centrality of the word, it's that no one can be saved if it's not there. In fact, think about this. The most important element of sharing the gospel is the gospel, not your delivery. Now, you can leave a Bible in a room, and someone who's lost come in and read that Bible. What could happen to them? They get saved. You're not even required. That's how good the revelation is. Now, you are the God-ordained means of preaching that word, of sharing that word, of living out and proclaiming that word, but the word of God has the power to bring salvation. So faith comes from preaching the word. Faith comes from preaching the word. And then we, we looked at this in our Wednesday night study on Galatians, but I want you to see this actually in 2 Corinthians, and we looked at this Passage in 2 Corinthians, while we were talking about Galatians, that's confusing. If you come on Wednesday night, though, you know what I'm talking about. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, all that Scripture says is the way you get saved is God shines His light in you. How does God shine His light in you? It's through the Word. How does that word get its light in you? You've heard it preached. You've read it. You've seen it. You've experienced the word of God. The word of God produces faith. Now, I want to show you one of the most interesting passages on the word of God in all of the New Testament. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Who's Peter? Was Peter known for his most famous thing he did? You know, it's either one of the two. It's either walked on water or denied Jesus three times. That's, that's always the top two. Um, one's awesome, one's disappointing, both Peter. He also got to see some other event in his life, and it's one of the most remarkable, in my estimation, stories of everything that Peter did. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and when he went up on the mountain, he, we just use this word transfigured, which is our fancy way of saying we don't know what happened. Somehow, the godness of Jesus became manifest to Peter, James, and John right there. And somehow, I don't know how exactly Peter, James, and John knew, but Elijah and Moses were there with him. And then Peter opens his mouth and says, can I build a tabernacle for each of you? As though like there's going to make some monument for each of these three amazing people. But what he said in that moment was actually heretical. And he made a significant major theological error by saying he was going to build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, what's the error? Only one of them is God. The other two are humans, at best. Jesus is God. So God the Father interrupts him. 
didn't even finish his thought. And he says, no, he didn't say no, but the no's implied. This is my son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Not the other two guys. This one. Listen to him. And Peter, of course, falls down like he's dead. I can only imagine Peter's, you know, just made an error in front of God. You know, it's one thing to make a mistake at home. No one's looking. It's another thing to accidentally contradict the power of the Trinity from the pulpit and realize you committed a theological error. Well, imagine making that error in God's presence. You get this one opportunity to say something in God's presence, and it's stupid. It's like heretically stupid. He falls down dead. But I love that narrative because Jesus walks over to Peter and touches him on the shoulder. It's like, it's okay, Peter. Because Peter's going to end up being this rock of the early church. It's an amazing story. But Peter has this moment. Can you imagine that was a significant moment for Peter, for the heavenly father to interrupt him, correct him, on the spot, and think he was going to die. And then Jesus, that so much grace just in that physical touch, grabbing his shoulder. Major moment for Peter. So Peter's referencing that in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, For we did not follow clever desires, myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. He just said, we've got something better than my mountaintop experience. And what is that? We have the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying we have in that book We have in God's word the sure prophetic source of this truth, God himself. So it's very important you get this. The word is more powerful than experience. The word is more powerful than experience, meaning the word is always more powerful than your testimony. Testimony is powerful. You heard a good testimony and it just moved your soul? Absolutely. But it's not as powerful as the word. The Word of God has the power to transform lives. So let's bring all this to conclusion, and let's talk about preaching and its role in the daily life of the church. So let's just fill in the blank, and then I'll walk through some scriptures. Number one, preaching the Word is the primary diet of the church. Primary diet of the church. You may remember Jesus when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He quotes this reference, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Man does not live by food, but by spiritual food. This is the Word of God. If it was that for Jesus, can you imagine us coming up with something better? But also, and this one's, I'll try not to open a can of worms here, but 1 Corinthians 14 is about this. So we may say, and I know I've heard this exact accusation against churches that emphasize preaching the Word, it seems that we emphasize some spiritual gifts over other spiritual gifts. And just to put your mind at rest, we do emphasize some spiritual gifts over others. They are not all equal. The Bible says this directly. And so this is in the conversation in 1 Corinthians 14. He's comparing prophecy and tongues. 
Now, which one does he say is better? Do you know the passage? There's no contest. Prophecy. Prophecy is better than tongues any day because you know what's being said. Now, we have to be very careful when we use the word prophecy because in English, prophecy primarily means like foretelling. That's not what the word means in Greek. The word in Greek just refers to any spoken gifts. So if you get up and you preach the Bible, that's prophetic. If you share a word from the Lord, you quote Scripture even. You just give a, you write a poem that's teaching theology, that's even prophetic. That is what the word means. So he's comparing preaching the word versus charismatic experience. Now he's not discounting the second, the latter. He's just saying one's more important. And the word of God is always more important. He even says, you know, when you're ordering the church, you know, let two or three prophets speak. So if we want to get real biblical, we can have at least two, maybe three sermons every Sunday morning. Nobody will be here next week. I'm sorry. That's, no, okay, we're not going to do that. But we understand here that he's saying one of these gifts is fundamental, and that's why preaching the Word is primary in our churches. In fact, our churches from the Reformation forward have been pulpit-centered, meaning there's a tendency to put the pulpit in the middle, and everyone gathers around to look at the elevated Word of God. This is to symbolize the fact that we believe the Scriptures have power. So at our church, that means most Sundays, we're not doing topical sermons. We are instead preaching from the Word of God. Now, I find it complete, completely interesting and ironic that I'm teaching you topically today that we should systematically not do topical sermons. Okay, so there's exceptions, okay? Fair enough. So topically, I'm telling you we should stay in the Word. So we only do topics sometimes, and they're not drawn out for very long, so we will immediately dive back into a book. And I love, one of my favorite things about preaching at this church is when we get near the end of a book, several people come up to me, hey, what are we studying next? What's our, what's our next book? And I'm like, yes, you get it. You care. The Bible is amazing. It's powerful. And it's life-changing. This should be our primary diet in the church. Next, and this is the scripture I want to spend the most time on, so I'm sorry, it's already 15 after. We're going to do it anyway. Faithful preaching the word produces trustworthy fruit. So you're already in 1 Corinthians. Go back to the beginning of that book. Look at chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's a very famous quote in this verse that's often misconstrued and mis, um, misapplied for sure. But I want you to see what Paul's saying. We're going to read much of chapter 2 there, but I want to make sure you get the main idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't come with amazing preparation. He didn't come with this perfectly set up, articulate, dynamic preaching style. Instead, he just showed up and he said this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now what goes wrong is we have a tendency to think that statement is a reference to the content. It's not a reference to the content. It's a reference to his style. He came and decided to know nothing among them except the crucified Christ, that he would be broken, that he would be weak, that he would not come with lofty speech and wisdom, but instead in the humility of crucifixion and death. So I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So 
that he would rather preach a poor sermon that was biblically solid than preach a good sermon that had good biblical content. You see the difference there? Because he knew that the power was not in the delivery. The power was in the Word. If he knew if he did this Word, then it would prove that whatever happened there would be the work of God, not the work of men. You ever hear a sales pitch, and it sounds amazing, but just because it's a sales pitch, you don't want to buy in? That's how I get it. I'm like, ooh, that sales pitch was good. Therefore, no, <laughs> not buying it. Because there's something about it being a sales pitch that makes me distrust the, the fruit, distrust the conclusions. Like, oh, that's too good to be true. Because it's always too good to be true, right? That's the whole point of a sales pitch. And that's why I would much rather have a salesman who's, ah, this is the fact. Here's, here's how it works. Blank, blank, blank. Make your decision. I just work better with that. And maybe that's how they're manipulating me. I don't know. But you understand what I'm saying. There's this hesitation to trust something that happens just because the delivery was really good. And a lot of churches thrive on this. In fact, the entire revival movement is built around how can we get people to the front of the stage, sign a card, and get them in the water. Yeah, but if it's not real, it doesn't matter if we got them in the water. It doesn't matter if they signed the card. It doesn't matter if they bowed their head and raised their hand and, and prayed the sinner's prayer. If it's not real, we want to preach the Word. We want it to be based on the power of God's Word because we need it to be real. Look at verse 13. We'll skip the other part. It says, and we impart this. This is the wisdom of God. We impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It's absolutely critical that what comes out of my mouth on Sunday morning, any church you go to, what should be coming out of the pastor's mouth is the truth of God's Word. And it will transform lives. We believe in this power. Because, last point, preaching the Word engages the heart. Preaching the Word engages the heart. There's a famous verse, Hebrews 4.12. Many of you probably know this verse or have heard it. Let me read it for you. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and spirit, the uh, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is like a knife. It's like a scalpel in our culture. Slices you open. Then go straight to the heart. Pierce that heart. Transform you. We should never, ever settle for anything less than the Word of God doing its work in us. Anything else we do is lofty speech. It's words of human wisdom. But instead, let's preach the power of the gospel. As we think about that, you probably recognize that there's a lot more application than just preaching the Word here on Sunday morning. You can take this word home. You have unprecedented access to this word in your daily life. And that's what we're going to do next. We're going to transition from the objective to the subject of disciplines of sanctification. So next Sunday, we're going to dive in. How do you use this word? How do you take this scripture? And not only are you fed it here on Sunday morning, how do you go home and make a meal of this every day and not live by physical food, but by the spiritual nourishment that comes from the scriptures? That's where we're headed. But I want us to make sure that when we gather on Sunday morning, we're here to be transformed by the power of the Word. And that's why it's always going to be a fundamental role, fundamental place in our church. Because we don't trust in man's power. We trust in God's.